Welcome to the Creative Play and Podcast Network. Join us as we review our favorite RPGs, collectible card games, MMOs, video games, PC games, and bring up interesting topics and things that we'd like to share with everyone. Sit back and enjoy the show. This is Kelly, a.k.a. Trixie from Ragnarok and Roll, assigned to Ragnarok Story, and Tilda Wimblewick from D&D Journey of the Fifth Edition. First off, I would just like to say thank you to everyone for listening to our varied adventures, as well as for rating us on iTunes and RPGpodcast.com. If you haven't rated us yet, we would greatly appreciate it if you could. And if you're looking for more ways to support our efforts, we are now on Patreon, a great site where you can help us continue making more podcasts, as well as some special surprises for our patrons. If you can, please look us up at www.patreon.com cppn. Every little bit helps. And again, thank you for listening. Hi guys, Jim here with Creative Plan Podcast Network, and today I'm bringing you a couple of our friends back on the show to talk about settings and backstories at your RPG table, and why they're both important, and tips to help you guys get better settings and backstories from the writer's point of view. So today I've got Justin Oldham, buddy of ours from After Collapse RPG. We've, t- we've had Justin on a few times, and we love having him back as much as possible. Thanks for coming back, Justin. And we've got Deborah Hoeing. Parzik from the Eververse RPG game, which we've had you on a few times, and we love having you back as often as we can. So any excuse I can get to get you guys back to circle around and come back on the show, I want to take it. So go ahead and take a second, guys, and go ahead and introduce yourself. Justin, go ahead and start. I am the aforementioned Justin Oldham. I'm coming to you from the great state of Alaska up here in the, the northern part of planet Earth. And uh, as the creator of AC After Collapse, yes, I did have to put a lot of work into the setting and the backstory for the commercial product. And uh, we we can get into that in, in a few minutes. But if you're just going to sit down and have a game with friends, if you're the GM, if you're the the DM, you still got to know this stuff. It's definitely a crazy important thing to have, especially as the GM. It's it's good to know the the background that you painted for your characters, because if not, it's kind of difficult to do anything. So Deborah, go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi everybody, I'm Deborah Honig Parizic. I am the uh, editor and uh, publisher of Eververse RPG, which is a generic 4D10 uh, gaming system that was designed by my late husband Dennis. I guess uh, one of the good things about uh, me being here today is that setting was one of the main reasons why Eververse RPG was designed. What I mean by that is uh, my late husband and his gaming group in college and in, way back in the early days of, uh, of his gaming game designing experience, they wanted to play a, a, a bunch of different games and, uh, and different settings. And mainly it was, you know, from books that they had read, uh, uh, movies that, uh, we had seen. And, uh, and there wasn't anything at the time and there may still not be all that many that were flexible enough to be adaptable. And that's why Eververse RPG was designed. Okay, so setting. You know, we all know from a writing point of view, setting is the broad brushstrokes that we set for our players, you know, in our games to, to get them the idea of 
fantasy, sci-fi, post-apocalyptic, you know, multiversal. So from your guys' points of view, and we'll, we'll go ahead and take turns round robin, you know, round table style. We'll have Justin go first and then Deborah. So from your point of view as both writers and gamers, so does your game need a strong setting and a backstory? I think the universal answer is yes, but I, I want to hear your, your extra details that you add to that. Justin? The short answer is yes, but it's also got to be relatable as briefly as possible. If you start throwing in a lot of ands and commas to describe your backstory, it gets to be harder for everybody at the game table to relate to it. Anybody who is in a game store flipping through your book, if they have to read uh, what what this is in more than one paragraph, you're probably going to lose the sale. So in, in my opinion, what, what, what backstory and setting really gets down to, it is the overarching theme of the thing, which in my case is post-apocalyptic, and then the rest of it is is angles or handles that people can relate to so that they can lock onto it from their own point of view and they can play it. In my case, I, I, I build a backstory for my universe as a collapse of many causes so that if your thing is totally zombie apocalypse, we're going to have a source book for you eventually. If your thing is nuclear Armageddon, totally going to have a source book for you. Whatever your angle happens to be, the handle that is easiest for you to grab, that's included in the backstory of the, the collapse of many causes. So when you encounter our product in a store... You won't say, aha, post-apocalyptic role-playing game, totally get that. But what kind of apocalypse? Well, the spicy meatball in all of this is it's the kind of apocalypse that you have most wanted, but no game designer has yet given it to you because they just haven't given you the keys to the kingdom, all the keys to the kingdom. And uh, that, that that's where I'm coming from. And if I ever did do anything else, if I was going to do a fantasy game, I would still approach the same way. Overarching, relatable concept. This is wizards and dragons. This is wh- wh- whatever it's going to be. You know, it's peasants and paychecks, whatever it is. And and then there will be as many handles on this a- a- as possible so that if you have 10 gamers at the table and everybody's got a different point of view, they all go to the same destination. That's a great way of putting it. Making it totally relatable, but digestible you know it's it's not a novel you have to read for backstory but it's enough that you can hit the ground running and play with and still be adaptable absolutely okay what's your opinion on it deborah uh well the way that we have always done it is that uh the game master and their group usually determine, you know, with discussion or maybe they've all read the same book or seen the same movie and they say, hey, we would really like to play an X uh, session. 
And so the game master provides the, the, uh, uh, I guess the session uh, or the, uh, the setting details. Oh, I don't know. Just for the, the heck of it, we'll go with, uh, uh, one that, uh, we did in our gaming group, which was based on the, uh, uh the movie Highlander. So we had a basic idea of the universe that we all wanted to play in. And my late husband, the game designer, Dennis, was the uh, game master. So uh, he took that universe and used our rules as the structure for it. And then everybody knew what we were going for. The same thing is if we really wanted to play some other kind of uh, uh, somebody said, okay, we want to play a fantasy setting. Well, then the game master was usually responsible for making a fantasy setting from maybe um, various inputs that they've had, a fantasy book that they've read or something along those lines. And then we provided the structure for like the uh, um, the rules to resolve all the actions or uh, um, how to build your characters, such like that. Um, we do have uh, in our product uh, the future history. Uh, a bit of uh, 10,000 years of future history that could be a set a set of, of adventures that would play out in a possible future for humankind. But in general, we uh, um, are usually generic and don't insist on a, on a specific setting at this point. Kind of gives you know that freedom to the whole pick what story you guys want to pit and wrap the rule system around that. That's right. Yeah, we've uh, the the adventure that hit that hooked me in gaming many moons ago was uh, I really, really, really wanted to play a Jedi adventure after we all saw Episode Six, Return of the Jedi, and uh, I, I I just I, oh come on Dan, come up with something. And this was well, this was you know back in 1983, well before all the Star Wars games came out. And uh, uh, and so he came up with a really great adventure that uh, it hooked me on gaming instantly using the rule system that he was designing. And uh, that is now known as every verse RPG. So um, we we felt like there were just so many uh, different worlds that people had come up with that uh, uh, people wanted to play in. And uh, there wasn't anything at the time to do that. And hence the birth of our generic system. That's great. And that's, that's pretty much both of you said the important thing is that the backstory and the story for your setting helps give everybody the same theme and feel of, hey, guys, this is what we're sitting down to play. So that way, from the very get-go, everybody realizes what you're sitting there to play, you know, like whether it's post-apocalypse because the rise of the machine or if it's, you know, a galaxy far, far away with an evil empire versus the scoundrels in the Jedi. So the, the big thing is that story and backstories that help set what the theme and the flavor of the game is going to be. Does that sound about right? Yes. Amen. Indeed. So, you know, most of us, we've, we've played around with a few different games. We've read a few books, seen a few movies. So we, we get the idea of the generalness of when you have a setting, you've got, you know, your genre. 
you know, what, what kind of basic genre is. And then, uh, like Justin touched on the themes, you know, what is the theme? Like if you Google any of the writing tools that are out there, there are themes up the wazoo. If it's man versus nature, man versus man, you know, what theme you're going to go for that helps set the thing. Uh, back in the day, back in high school, when I used to run games like every other day, I used to always come out with splash pages for the, here's the game I wanted to play. Here's a brief paragraph setting, and here's what I want to give you guys as options for player sheets. And that used to be like the rough splash sheet, like the, at the back of a book. You know, you just read that little paragraph summary, and boom, here's the setting. Do you guys want to play this? What, what things did you guys do for your gaming groups to help set right off the bat the theme and flavor of your games? Ladies first. Oh, thanks. <laughs> um, just uh, thinking about that, um, I guess the, the most recent one that I can remember is uh, when we did uh, um, the first demos at Space City Comic Con here in Houston. We did give out a splash sheet like that. Uh, we uh, um, had pre-developed characters, and we uh, uh, had a brief, uh, um, uh, I guess, a brief summary that... Uh, uh, hey, you are playing in a pseudo Potter verse steampunk mashup, and uh, you're either a wizard or you're a steampunk type person, and you are all going to uh, follow this prophecy to possible treasure. And so it was uh, a good way to let people know that, hey, you know, if you're into the Potter thing, you know, we're going to have a little, a few elements of that in it. And oh, by the way, if you're into steampunk, here we are. We're going to have some steampunk elements in, in this. And uh, let's go find some treasure. And I, I think that was, that was very effective. It helped us get some folks in the door to, uh, um, to go in game and, and, uh, uh, let's see. I think we, um, we also did that for, for Gen Con last year. Not we didn't play the same adventure, but, but um, then I um, I was lucky enough that uh, I went there with the IGDN and several of the games from that the IGDN were presenting uh, were selected to be in the uh, the brochures and on the website. For, for Gen Con, and we were one of the ones that were chosen. But we had only, like, I don't know, 75 characters to rope people in. So I wrote a, um, a brief one about the, the hybrid teens adventure that we were doing. It's like, uh, you wake up in this situation, what happened? <laughs> so that was all we got for there. So those are, are the two, I guess, splash type of, of uh, advertisements or pages that, uh, that I've used recently. What you got, Justin? I am a lifelong fan of all things post-apocalyptic. My living memory of books and movies goes all the way back to the early 1970s. And in the late 1970s, when such marvelous products as Gamma World came along, I found myself role-playing post-apocalyptic scenarios with people that I didn't have to explain anything to. We all had the same knowledge about books and movies, and so we just we just glommed onto it. And in those days, you can say that post-apocalyptic meant a relatively narrow range of certain things to us. But 
as we graduated from high school and we saw the end of the, the 20th century, more and more and more post-apocalyptic themes were becoming popular, they were becoming cultural phenomenon, and there does come a point in the first decade of the 21st century, 2000 to 2010, when people did not know what we were talking about anymore, when some of us geezers were talking about uh, uh, Twilight 2000-style adventures and nuclear war and so it was necessary to adapt and incorporate uh, the, the the modern themes. So even while we were still in testing and development for the game, it becomes clear to us that the the, the overarching concept of post-apocalypse is going to have to have a lot of handles on it because it has now come to mean many different things to many different people. That's how we come to that. And it in, in the last five years, before we actually went to press and stepped out into the light of day, we sharpened the message by doing what the, the two of you were just talking about. If we couldn't fit it on a single piece of paper, we didn't say it. And it turns out that, uh, especially if you're good with a dictionary and a thesaurus, you can say a lot on one, one sheet of paper. So we we made it work, and that's how we got to the, the product that we have today, which is relatable to so many people. And, and it definitely is, because you've got the your nuclear wasteland, you know, apocalypse. You've got your contagion apocalypse. You've got the rise of the machine apocalypse, and they all work with after collapse. So, you know, it really does matter of how tight of a setting and background your GM picks so that way players know which which apocalypse you're playing in, basically. Cause the, cause that, that is, is true. pretty much it, yes. And and for, for, for the gamers out there, some people, they want the whole buffet. They say, all right, fine, we've got 25 source books. Let's play with everything and effect. And, okay, you know, that's a leap of faith because you're hoping that the game designer actually did all the math well enough so that everything meshes. And it turns out that, oh, by the way, neutron weapons are not overkill in certain situations. (laughs) (laughs) So you end up with that kind of game that's got a horrible power creep that happens, which I I played that game. It can happen. It it, it can certainly happen. And... um, that's why, in our case, we broke everything out source book by source book so that the the GMs out there can stay in control. As with so many other games, if you go to a you know a traveler game or a D and D game, the referee is able to say, "Okay, you can have access to this, 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 and that. That over there, no, leave that alone. I'll hurt you if you read that." <laughs> I've said that a time or two. Yeah, mine did too. Though mine told me that I could not read the book. Uh, I, we were big into the um, the Mar- uh, what was her name, Marion Zimmer Bradley books of uh, Dark Over, and so he he forbade me from uh, reading one of the books because we were playing an adventure. And to this day, I still haven't <laughs> read his book. <laughs> I have it. I started reading it, but I have not finished it. 
Well, see, that's actually a really good segue for from a game writer, because of course, you know, we're, we're taking off the writer's hats and putting on the GM's hats. So plagiarism is not an issue at your, at your game table as long as you're not publishing anything. Where is a good place, speaking of books, you know, to find inspiration for a setting for a GM? Like we're talking that first game you want to run and you have you, you say the thing that every GM says at least once in their life of I have no good ideas, which we all know is a total fallacy because we all have amazing ideas because our brains are full of stories. It's just codifying something and putting it down. Where do you guys, like, when you're looking for inspiration, where would you recommend a new GM looks to get inspiration for a background setting? All right, I'll start with that. First thing is to thine own self be true. So know what you like and know what you don't like. So start with your own book collection. Start with your own movie collection. And uh, sit down and watch the movie. Sit down and read the book. And then make a list of the major plot points you like. And then, uh, and, and, and then run with it. Because you, you, you gotta, you gotta crawl before you can walk. And you gotta walk before you can run. And as they have said so many times in the past, imitation is the most sincerest form of flattery. So, in my case, you know, if you want to do a one-off of Mad Max, absolutely, go do it. Because the people who sit down at your game table, if they do not already know what this is, you can hand them the DVD and say, go watch that, come back, talk to me later. And everybody's got uh, everybody's got common ground. If you need to loan out some books, maybe it's wise to go to the used bookstore, buy some ratty old copies and uh, and hand them out. And that's how you go from there. But if you're starting with what you know, start with what's familiar so that by the end of the scenario, by the end of the campaign, when Mad Max is the king of Florida, you can look back and say, huh, that uh, turned out a lot different than the movie. Okay, all right. (laughs) Yeah, indeed. (laughs) And that's the easy way to get started. I'm actually kind of a huge fan of that, of when you start with the plot and story of a movie, especially since I love to do B-movies. That's kind of my thing, is you take a B-movie that was horribly bad, and you turn it into an adventure, and usually it can become amazing. One thing I always like to do is see how the end story ends, because with player characters, it, you're not going to have the same ending as the movie does, unless you, you do some hardcore railroad, railroading on that game. Which is, it was always a, a GM faux pas. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing worse than no matter what the players do, they end up here. I will completely second that. I am a big fan of what you might call the dynamic world. And it never bothers me if the players come to a fork in the road and they decide neither one, we're going to put it in four wheel drive and go cross country. Okay, that's, uh, that's fine. And Mm -hmm. there have been times when, and we've all been there, as a referee, you have built what you think is the greatest adventure of all time, but the players lock on to what the NPC said in in, in last night's game session, and they've decided that, uh, you know, they're going to go do that. And you don't have any, you don't have anything for it, so you say, okay, (laughs) all right, um, 
Let's let's have a 30 minute pizza break. Everybody come back, wash your hands when you're done and we'll we'll we'll, we'll go on. And if you're if you're if you're a good enough entertainer, you can build in breaks like that and people never know you were unprepared. That's that's definitely one of the GM tricks right there is the whole how to handle adversity and basically tell the group to look at this hand while your other hand's doing something else. <laughs> Oh yeah, I've been there, done that. Uh, yes, I, I uh, as I was going out and doing demos uh, uh, at the beginning of last year and and late in, in 2018, I had one adventure and we were playing it and like everybody took a different direction and I was not prepared for every single one of those and uh, so you know winging it for 45 minutes like oh god I'm so tired <laughs> can we quit please. <laughs> And uh, uh, luckily made it through, and and not too many people were the wiser. But uh, yeah, I definitely got to the point a couple of times where it's like, I don't have anything else. We're done. <laughs> okay, that's the adventure. Thank you very much for playing. <laughs> Sometimes that's just a good way to wrap it up too. It's just like, good job, guys. What do you think? And then you throw it at the, at the players. Or my always favorite one is which, which is kind of like backstory. Is you look at the players and say, okay, so after this adventure, what does your character go off and do? You know, because I always like giving the the player the chance to to write as much of the player fiat, you know, that they can control as much of the story that they can of. Here's my character, and here's what we've done, and that way you can steal their little little backstory, you know, or for mm. preface, you know, at the end of the whole, yeah, what's the next adventure, you know. So mm-hmm. Evan Cook from Paradigm Lost has jumped on the call, by the way. Hey there, guys. I, uh, interesting spot to join in. <laughs> Sounds like a cool conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we're pretty much talking about settings and backstories for your RPG games. So do you have any uh, any tips for a new GM to find inspiration for coming up with a setting. Seeing as you have a pretty mercurial, fluid RPG storyline yourself. Yeah, um, you know, I... So we actually touched on this last episode um, a little bit about uh, mini-worlds theory and multiverse theory. So there's these are actually two theories that are often confused together. Um... Many Worlds talks about the same universe, but different iterations of it. So uh, in that sense, uh, I might be talking to you in another universe, but I might be saying something a little different, but it's still me. We're still in the same universe. Maybe um, just it's just a different iteration. The physics are all the same. But with multiverse theory, physics are different. Um, you can have physics that don't really work at all together uh, and life doesn't exist. It's just a, a realm of total chaos of energy, um, uh, just uncontrolled. Uh, you have totally dead universes where there's just matter, uh, all kinds of things. This allows for uh, different aliens or different creatures that couldn't possibly exist here. And so I wanted to incorporate that into my story where basically you have a universe, an infinite number of iterations of it, but then other universes that have infinite iterations of those universes. 
In mathematics, to describe these multiple infinities, we often talk, uh, we often use the term aleph. It's a, uh, uh, it's a Hebrew letter and it represents infinity. And you can have some infinities that are larger than others and some that are smaller than others. Uh, and I know that's sort of mind bending to think about. Um, but a great way to think about it is, is, um, uh, if I were to have 1.111111 terminated, that means that it's an infinite number. Of, yeah, that's an infinite number. But pi, we also know is an infinite number, but it's 3.14 on and on and on. That's obviously bigger than 1.1111 terminated. So some infinities are bigger than others. So when I try to find a, um, a good universe to play in, because again, I have every universe at my fingertips I can imagine. Um, that's actually more limiting than helpful because again, some universes aren't really useful to play in because they don't really exist very much. Um, so what I like to do is, uh, I have these things called chrono shards and they're these dead remnants of a world, uh, a universe even. Um, and I do it for a reason. Uh, one of the things that kind of a annoys me about sci-fi, like Star Wars, for instance, is you go to the ice planet Hoth, you go to the desert planet Tatooine. How many planets have you ever seen, and especially ours, that only has one environment? Not many. But it's also hard to fill out each and every world. That's just not feasible. So um, I like to think of a theme that I'm going with. So um, the current story I'm working on for uh, Tales of um, the Tales from the Edge, I'm working with a uh, um, kind of an anchor environment, which is where you start off, and that's typically something very fantastical, something that uh, can really get people interested into the game. Uh, in this case, a city on the back of a flying turtle. Um, this sort of expands into um, more normal places that can be scary or whatever theme that I'm trying to uh, to kind of employ into the game. If I want something more adventurous, I'm probably going to pick a theme for my environment that's going to be more Star Wars-y, a little bit more, um, it, you know, uh, Count of Monte Cristo kind of thing. Um Whereas if I was going to go for uh, something scary, I would pick maybe like a rundown castle or maybe in a, a whole area that was forgotten and run down and taken over by monsters. Um, it, when uh, drawing comics, uh, I used to draw comics and stuff. Um, Japanese uh, mangakas, people who draw Japanese comics, they would talk about how American artists can really establish mood within their within the frames of their comic. The, the, basically saying that they can really illustrate to the reader uh, the emotion of the scene. It was dynamic. It wasn't flat. And so when I try to have a setting, I try to make it as dynamic, as descriptive as possible um, to set a mood. Um, some details just aren't needed, and you choose the details that help set the mood. So any setting can really work for you. It's really about setting the mood with that setting. That's a really good point. 
So one thing as, as a GM that I like to do is, you know, occasionally you can do the old filing off the serial numbers. You know, you take a fantasy movie, you make it sci-fi. You take a horror movie and you try to remove the horror elements but steal the story and you change it to something different. Like you could, you know, easily transform horror into sci-fi. Like if you look at any of the Aliens movies, you know, it's this classic mm-hmm, example yeah. of it's the scary monster in space. Uh, yep. As as I joke with a lot of my friends, Star Wars, the first three movies, that's sword in the stone with some extra movies thrown in. You know, it's it's King Ar- it's King Arthur pulling the sword from the stone and has the cool power of the lightsaber. You know, so what are your opinions as 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 redressing a story to a different genre? You know, just as as a quick, I need a game story for tonight. Pull and drop. Now, uh, when it comes to that, one thing I do want to add on is a little caveat is how do you keep it neutral so that your players can slot into the backstory? So like, do you say Prince, you know, or a noble pulls the sword and that way your players can hopefully catch the hint and play that character? Because a lot of times we all know your players will end up creating characters that are completely just support staff to this backstory you've just written. Yeah, so I actually, um, my favorite movie uh, is Ghostbusters. And when you look at Ghostbusters, is it a horror? Is it a comedy? Um, is it sci-fi? What is it? It's a treasure. Um, it's a treasure, yeah, but that's exactly <laughs> it. So um, blending uh, genres can often sort of appeal to a wider audience, uh, to more, essentially more players on the table. Um and, you know, I, I guess what I what it seems like you're asking, correct me if I'm wrong, is you're sort of asking, how do I motivate players to engage with the story? Is that about right? Yeah, that, that's, that's exactly right. How do you get the buy-in so, from your players? So that's actually, in my experience, one of the hardest things. Um, I actually spoke to my wife about this uh, a couple nights ago in preparation for this episode. Um, about how uh, we talked about GM responsibility, but we also talked about player responsibility, um, how it's often kind of forgotten and how we sort of, we kind of put the weight of the world on the GM and the GM creates, really the GM is just there to make a setting. It's there to sort of get, build the story and then the players write it. And that's where we forget that the players have responsibility. They have to play the game. They have to write that story. Otherwise, there is no game. There is no story. Uh, There's just a setup. That's it. So to what I found, especially as an early GM, is everyone always wanted sandboxes. I want a sandbox to play in. I I just want to do whatever I want. Well, okay, well, um, here's your sandbox. What are you going to do? And then we, they would sit at, sit and stare at each other. They would do nothing. Uh, cause I didn't give them a motivation. I didn't give them anything to do because they wanted a sandbox. So I started realizing, um, that there are a lot of different ways to get players to engage with the setting that you've created. Um, in fact, uh, tvtropes.com is a excellent source for finding ways to kind of get around that issue. Um, my favorite one is Man with the Smoking Gun. Um, 
you're everything's boring, nothing's going on, nothing's happening. Everyone's kind of, well, we did the thing, now what? And suddenly the NPC you were talking to has been shot dead. There's a man with a smoking gun in the door, and he, as you see him, he slips into the crowd and he's gone. Well, I just created this mystery out of nothing um, that now the players have to sort of follow. And yeah, that's a little bit more fly by the seat of your pants. I prefer a little bit more of a railroaded story where you don't have a lot of options, where there's going to be something that, that in the gaming industry they call false agency, where... And that's, I guess, the key, is you have to give your players agency. Um, you have to give them the ability to do things and the, uh, excuse me, and the setting and um, story to do them with, like tools almost. And I find myself uh, often often railroading my, um, my players and then giving them, an op- giving them options which all have the same outcome, and that's what false agency is, is you... You know, they think that they're affecting the story, but as they have no idea that you were going to do the same thing no matter what they chose. Uh, this happens in video games a lot. They, they call them, you know, com, you know, in conversation trees in video games. You'll talk to this person. You'll say something. No matter what thing you say, their response is so general that it's the same thing. It's the same response to each thing you say to them. Um, and so. That requires actually a lot of forethought and planning and also knowing the players a lot. You have to really know what your players are going to do, um, which is is a double-edged sword a little bit because once players start realizing you're doing that, uh, they feel a little manipulated. (laughs) (laughs) And so... um, you know, I think that's why if you do decide, if, if you're a GM and you're thinking about doing something like that, I think it's really, really important for you to realize that as the GM, you're not the adversary of the players. Uh, you can pretend to be, but really, why did you write that story just to kill off the players before the story is told? Especially since yeah. you have an infinite budget and killing players yeah. is easy. Exactly. <laughs> But yeah, that's that's generally how I engage uh, players is to give them agency, um, you know, give them the ability to do things in an environment that they want to be in, in a mood and a setting that they want to be in. Give them the bait and, and just watch them, watch them take it. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to expand on that a little bit because it, uh, it it does factor into game design, which I have uh, some small familiarity with here. But uh, in the same way that you would build your cast of characters for a game supplement that you intend to publish, if you build a cast of NPCs who populate your universe and you as the GM begin with the assumption that this cast of NPCs, they're going to do whatever it is they're going to do until the player characters nudge them differently. You populate your, your world 
with NPCs who come and go, and you know the good ones can be good, the bad ones can be bad. You can be that directly black and white about it, but eventually it happens where the players feel like they're developing uh, relationships with certain NPCs that they will trust over time, and you'll know you're on the right track when some of the players will trust some of the NPCs with the party's most important secrets, their most important missions, etc. And then the cherry on top of the ice cream is the villains that they love to hate. They would not dare, they would not dare pick a fight with Black Bart, but they know he's coming through town and they just can't resist the opportunity to mess with them a little because they know that, well, maybe I can take him, maybe I can't. What happens if I do? That sets off a whole different chain of events because sometimes, yes, you know, you have people who simply want to enrich themselves as a matter of gameplay. You have other people who like to defeat the bad guy as a matter of gameplay. But then, you know, because oh, great power tends to bring with it great responsibility. What do you do when the townspeople come to you and say, uh, well, first, your, your, your lordship, thank you very much for getting rid of these brigands. They've been plaguing us for quite some time now. And please, please forgive us. We understand you're having a drink with your friends, but we'd like to talk to you about the necromancer who lives on the edge of town. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I, you know. I'm a huge fan of the ecosystem, you know. Yeah. Yes, and so when you, uh, you know, give give the players the opportunity to say no, and sometimes this has a consequence, and sometimes it doesn't, and those consequences can be remarkable because I had somebody a few years back um, say to the NPCs, "Hey, look, man." We're not always going to be here. We can't always save your bacon. Why don't you people go deal with the necromancer yourself? Well, okay, a few dice rolls. The peasants, they look at each other. Yeah, yeah. You know, I hadn't thought about it like that. Yeah, all right. And so a while later, the uh, the maimed body of the dead necromancer is hanging from a light post in town, and the locals are like, hey, you hero types, pay your bills, man. <laughs> you're, you're, you're not our guests. You said you were passing through. By the way, when the hell are you leaving? You have now empowered them, and now you have to pay the price. Yes. Yeah. You can, do, I, the, uh, you oh, can do the oh. same thing with a gumshoe game. You know, you, you, you start with the penny ante criminals, and the next thing you know, uh, you know, the deputy chief of police is coming to you on the sly, and, you know, they would like some help with this mob guy. They just can't have anything to do with it. I actually wanted to add on to that, because kind of what you seem to be talking about is uh, plot strings. And we actually touched on this last episode as well with backstories. Uh, as a GM, pay attention to your players' backstories and use them as plot strings to help motivate them forward. Um, you know, if they're a long-lost orphan, 
maybe one of their parents is alive and they didn't know. Uh, the best thing is as a GM for me is when people, uh, when players decide that they're going to have amnesia. That is the most foolish thing to do with me. <laughs> so much authority and power has been given away. Yeah, it's just like a blank canvas. I can do anything I want to you. <laughs> Second they walk into town, the group is arrested because they're with him, that guy. Everyone knows yep. that guy. <laughs> the next town over, it's it's the man named Jane. You know, he's a hero, full there hero of the go. people. What there did you, you do? And he, guy, just I, I don't know. You took the words right out of my mouth. That's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I didn't hear from Deborah. Did I run you over, Deborah? <laughs> uh, no, I was just sitting here and thinking about this, and uh, um, I guess that I would say that most of the adventures that we've done uh, uh, try to hook the the players in with some kind of a mystery. Uh, as I mentioned before, um, the hybrid teens, you know, they wake up in a situation like, oh, boy, well, what the heck happened? Last night I was at prom. Now I'm here in this uh, cell and I have no idea how I got here. Um, and in uh, 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 the other adventure that we mentioned uh, um, earlier, the uh, uh, wizards slash steampunk, uh, we have one of the wizards who's going to give uh, a prophecy. And so thus leading our uh, our stalwart adventurers off on a merry treasure chase. And uh, then if especially if it's playing on being a multiple um, session campaign, then uh, like uh, layers of mystery, kind of like peeling an onion where things get, uh, you know, more and more complicated or uh, more and more um uh, metaphysical, something along those lines. Or those are the, the adventures that I've played in and or, well, mostly played in. Uh, um, I've game mastered the hybrid teens and the, the uh, oh, I probably, uh, no, I actually have not run the uh, uh, Wizard Steampunk one, which we're updating now because uh, I'm a very new game master, like a year to a uh, year and a half experience. Uh, but uh, my late husband was a master at the peel the onion uh, thing. We had uh, an adventure that went like 88 sessions where it just kept uh, getting, you know, we went from like um, immortals in, in uh, the Highlander universe to like guardians of good, good and evil for the entire universe. And, uh, and 88 sessions of that. It was it was a masterful peeling the onion. It was amazing. Yeah. That that's fantastic when you get that that big of an ongoing story arc. I mean, all all GMs know it's beautiful when you get that campaign that just keeps going. You know. Mhm. Mhm. Indeed. So you guys were kind of touching on it earlier when it comes to the player backstory. So how is it as it, as GMs? How is it a good way to motivate your players to actually come up with a backstory more than I? I am a orphan nobody from this town who happens to be a half-orc barbarian, and I've never committed any atrocities in my life. But I'm off to set off on an adventure now for some reason, which I have no motivation to go do. You know, the, the typical adventure, I, show, I showed up to this bar, and this weird wizard convinced me with free beer to get Shanghai into adventure. 
Well, I'll start with that. The first thing you do is you you take a page from the book of Evan Cook and you make them wish they had put more effort into their backstory. <laughs> so punishment, <laughs> that's learned, a good one. <laughs> after they learn the lesson, you ease up on them and you find the right time in the right place and you pick the small, minor, little, insignificant thing from each character's backstory, and that turns out what they need to solve a mystery, to right a wrong, to 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 to, to do something. And 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 what happens is this motivation causes the player to realize, wow, this little thing that I put in my backstory, this is what enables me to, to figure out something that never would have occurred to me in any other way. And now I'm the hero and I save the day. And that's, that, that, that's how you motivate them. And not only have I done this, but it, it, it has been a longstanding thing for me. What I do is while we're still in the character generation phase, we go around the table clockwise. And what you do is you turn to the person to your immediate left, and you're allowed to add one sentence to their backstory. Now, you can hand, you can handicap them with something really nasty, or you can bless them with, with something really nifty, and then we we sit down and we we will oftentimes um, we will somebody's got music but we will we will oftentimes um, what what I do is during many adventures I pay attention to what people have on their equipment lists and in the same way that you can be rewarded. Uh, for, for, for that one picky little detail in your backstory, you find yourself in a situation where that ball of twine, that piece of wire, that spare shoelace, the vitally important thing to solve the problem, save the day. And by working the problem from the different directions, not only do you get the characters to care more about their backstories, they care, they, they, they care more uh, about what's on their equipment lists, and they will relate to each other in ways that you won't think of as GM at the time. You'll be in the middle of a hyper-intensive situation. One player says to another, hey, Bob, didn't you collect baseball cards at one point? Do you still have one? And lo and behold, you know, they, they, they start mutually supporting each other because the little details of their backstories, the little details of what's in their pockets, it starts to matter to them as a, as a, as a matter of shared experience. And when you, when you can pull that off in right measure without making anybody want to commit suicide, then you have the better game. That, that's a great tip. I actually really like that. Sorry, go ahead, Evan. Oh, I was sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was just saying I really liked that, and I apologize. I live by a busy road, uh, so that's what you heard earlier. I think somebody didn't have a muffler. 
Yeah, because that's that's that is a really good tip. I mean, especially when you look at the characters' equipment list, you're bringing what they think is important on their character into the story. So you're basically it's like, how would the story of you know Theseus and the Minotaur have been without a ball of twine to get out of the maze? Something stupid, exactly. simple, and you're making it a key stone to the story. So all of a sudden, yes. the player who wrote that down is going. I'm a genius. I brought the MacGuffin, you know. And that- Absolutely. And, and, the, and the, the, the way I have trained people to this over the years, and anybody who knows me loves this and hates this, every time you create a new character in the game environment, it doesn't matter if it's uh, Twilight 2000, Traveler, D&D, or AC After Collapse, um, I will ask you to add a teddy bear to your character sheet and to name the teddy bear. And you're, you will never know when this happens. But at some point in the story, it will matter that a random character has a teddy bear. They haven't lost it. They, 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 they've got it. And I have seen situations in a wide variety of games where one person will absolutely throw a fit until the party goes home because so-and-so forgot to bring his teddy bear. (laughs) And as juvenile as that sounds, it absolutely works. In a fantasy setting, the characters are deep underground in a monster-infested dungeon, and the stone gargoyle animates, it turns, it looks at them and it says, show me your teddy bear and you may pass. And, you know, the one guy, <laughs> the one guy who didn't bring his is like, I, uh, fellas, I'm going to stay out here and just watch the hallway. <laughs> and it, it, it is a simple enough thing, but it will make people stop and think, you know, before we set out on this adventure, I want to buy some shoelaces, a couple of buttons. Can anybody know where I can get some dice? And how about one of those little glass magnifying lenses? How about that? You know, and, and they, 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 they will march out of town with a hundred little things on them. And they're totally confident that somewhere in all of that stuff is the one thing they will need to succeed. You know, that does bring up an important point. The character sheet is part of a player's backstory. You know, the equipment that they choose, that is part of the backstory. You know, it's the unwritten backstory that's written on the front of the character sheet. (laughs) So is there any, like... Yes, please go on. Oh, is there any, because uh, because I like the way you put it, it sounds a lot like we do at our session zeros when we start coming up with the, I ask the group about the, the setting. You know, I basically let everybody inject something into the setting, like, you know, hey, what is the name of the nearest forest to the, 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 the dungeon? Hey, what is the nearest group of monsters way beyond your level that's in the in the ecosystem? You know, so that way, and then we make our characters after we come up with the setting, and then I have everybody basically go off and work on their backgrounds kind of after they've had the jam session to try to come up with what they have you know at least a paragraph or two of your character's backstory because that 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 is an important thing is your adventure of what's your motivation what other tips do you guys have for for getting your players to to buy in and on on your backstory i think um 
Actually, you know, Deborah, do you have something to say? Uh, actually, I can't say too much on this because uh, I am a, a pretty new game master. And so uh, um, primarily, it's for me, it has been the, the written mystery. And uh, um, we've just written a story from there. And uh, uh, I haven't had any opportunity since uh, we've mostly been doing the canned characters to have people generate much in the way of of their character backgrounds and so on. Um, I haven't really had my own group that lasted. Um, I have played in my late husband's group and or in my chief play officer Jim's group. But um, as a game master, my experience has been demos. Well, that's not bad at all. Yeah. Uh, do uh, you have any tips? I was terrified. <laughs> no, I've played I your demos and you're not, you know, you're fantastic. Is there any tips? Well, thank that, you very much. Is, is there any tips or, or things that you'd, you know, Hell, even advice that you'd like players to ask, like questions about the setting, rather than, you know, stumbling in with almost no background to the stories. Oh, is this, is this directed to me, Jim? Uh-huh. Yep. To Deborah. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, oh, gee, I don't, um, I can't really think of anything at the moment. I guess that uh, uh, just really good questions about what the setting is that we're playing and, uh, um, you know, maybe what they might remember from uh, before the mystery thing happened. Um, And then, um, hmm, hmm, I guess settings questions after that as as we're moving through the adventure. So so don't be afraid to ask questions because I know a lot of players they they have a question because they forgot something that happened 20 sessions ago and they re- they refuse to ask until after the game session and you know you have to sit there and say hey it's cool if you put your hand up and say quick question what was blah 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 from session mm-hmm. you know 5 or 6 ago you know so that way you're not missing out on something while you're playing so, so asking questions is an important thing. That's, yes, indeed. I mean, you may not be able to describe everything to them, and you may not want to describe everything to them at the moment, but uh, um, a lot can be missed if, you, uh, if they don't ask questions about the setting. And uh, you know, maybe if they do happen to have a question, since, like I said, we've been playing with canned characters something that I might be able to answer about said canned character that they're playing. Uh, or uh, um, once we get into the more, um, I don't know, the more, the area of the adventure where they know more, then maybe I can tell them something along the lines of what this particular uh, skill means on their character sheet or something like that. I definitely know that like when I play one shots and I, I try to coach a lot of folks when I'm running one shots is I like to look at my character sheet and the GM and say, so as a 10th level paladin of vengeance, what would I know about this situation from my character's point of view? So that way you, you can have the GM give you some, you know, cause you know how as a GM you're wanting to tell your players more, but you don't want to give away everything unless they have a good reason to know it. 
but you need to you need to give them that little clue. Mm-hmm. So I, I like to throw that out there as the so my character, not me, my character. What would he know? So that way I like to use that as a freebie for the GM to throw in. Oh well, you know. You know, you, you had a fiance in the in the providence of you know Champagne who used to do this thing and talk about this person. So yeah, you know that there's a witch in the swamp. That that's one thing that I like to do is 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 give the players the chance mm-hmm. as a character to get the character's input as well, which is always you know a fun way of help help that's- pushing the plot forward. The one thing I would like to add to that for both players and GMs is that there can be um, a a free-form flow of information when players interact with NPCs, and any form of interaction with NPCs gives the referee the opportunity to to, 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 basically to to, to put out truth or uh, falsehoods, and as the players go along and they realize that that you know that that, that little weasel over there can't be trusted <laughs> but uh, the guy over there at the end of the street you know the one who has you know very expensive taste in liquor and, and, and insists that you keep you know he never talks until you buy him a, an expensive drink that guy man he is really really on target and what happens is for the players they start to feel like the environment is more real. They feel like they have friends. They feel like they have enemies. And on the other side of the table, the GM has a better sense of what the players need to know and, and, and when they need to know it. So even when uh, the, the, any of the players are interacting with the street sweeper and, you know, some player says, dude, how do you know that? And the street sweeper says, excuse me, street sweeper, people talk in front of me all the time. It's like I'm invisible, man. It just, it aggravates me constantly. Thanks for asking. <laughs> that's, that's, but, but that's that for, for for the GMs out there. That's your barometer for the players out there. That's your resource to exploit as you see fit. And there are times you can ask NPCs questions that you you, you couldn't rationalize asking the GM. I mean that that's a great point because it lets you it lets the GM have a talking head to basically deliver the information that you know you know the GM wants to give you that information but can't justify well somebody wrote it on a scroll and left it for you you know it could be of your your adventuring party wants to know more information about the dungeon so you talk to the Bar wench, who basically immediately starts bawling and crying because her brother went in there last, was the last group of adventurers, and they were told to be prepared for blah, 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 and he never came back. You know, it's a great tool as a GM to be able to use, you know, the, the NPCs as talking heads to add to the story. And then, of course, it's great when they have allies that, that they will do anything for. Because, you know, then you have your classic damsel in distress that you can use. So, hey, so-and-so heard so-and-so was talking to you, so they kidnapped that person. Are you going to go save them? Yeah. I think um, I think this is actually a really interesting question. Um, and 
my answer to it, uh, or at least my two cents would be, uh, I just demonstrated it actually. Um, so when we have players as the GM, we have to realize that again, we're the story setter. We're not the storyteller as much as we like to think so. Um, and, uh, in teaching, we have two things. We, we like to talk about two things. We have Vygotsky. Uh, he is a psychologist. He talks mostly about something called the zone of proximal development. And this really is the gap between when a child needs help tying their shoes and when they can tie their shoes on their own. This actually happens with your players, too. Even some of the most experienced players, if they're playing a new, if they've never played GURPS before and they've only played D&D, there's going to be a zone of proximal development where they're going to need your help. They, they don't know how to do combat. They need your help as the GM. They're going to ask questions. But the thing is, is as the GM, sometimes it's more entertaining for your players to anticipate those questions. To do the second thing in teaching is what we call scaffolding. And it's how we address the zone of proximal development. So you ask complex questions. See, as the GM, I think it's important to ask questions. Um, and questions don't always have to be about direct information. They can be hypothetical questions or they can be engaging questions. So when I asked Deborah to, um, to speak before me, uh, it was because A, I was interested in what she had to he uh, hear. <laughs> A, I was interested in what she had to say, but also I wanted to see where that prod would go. I wanted to see what she would say that might, that James might respond to. But then I got a bonus reaction from Justin. Um, and we had a whole conversation because I asked a question. And so as the GM, um, I like to, uh, you know, if, um, if you're in the desert and I, I have this long description and there's little key points in that description that the players just kind of didn't pick up. Maybe they're inexperienced. Maybe they weren't paying attention. There's a myriad of things. I might sort of underline that key point with a question or something that maybe an NPC does. Um, or just as the GM, um, I might say, like, man, you really notice that the, the, the sun is really red in this desert, and you don't know why. You've never seen the sun this red before. Um, and that usually spurs a... Uh, action or investigation of some kind. Um, it gets their curiosity. Actually, that's exactly it. It's about their motivation because I don't like what we're talking about is exposition. And you have to be really, really careful about front loading all of your exposition on your players because they're not going to pay attention to all of it. They're going to forget most of They're only going to remember five to 10% of what you say. Adults have an attention span of about five to 15 minutes, kids even less, all right? And so if you're sitting here babbling and rambling on like I am right now, you're going to lose people every single time. I learned this especially as a teacher. So you have to ask those probing questions, engage your audience by giving them agency, by asking them those questions and allowing them to ask you those questions back. Um, you know, and also uh, I think... This is sort of a little bit of a side note, 
But as a science teacher, as a teacher, I had to learn that sometimes it's okay to be wrong. And what I mean by that is everyone, all your players look up to you. You're the GM after all. You should know everything about the rules, about the setting, about the NPCs, about what NPCs said three sessions ago. You know, it's all on you. And we talk about GM responsibility earlier, but um, you've got it's okay sometimes to make a mistake. And if your players point it out, it's you know don't see it as an attack on you. See it as an opportunity to give more exposition um, without it being sort of uh, this front-loaded dialogue-heavy exposition. Um, show, don't tell kind of thing. And you can use opportunities like that to show. You know what? You're right. They did say that last time. And now this is happening because you're right. Um, and I, I guess I guess that's how um, I guess that's the best way to sort of get players to engage in that way with exposition is to sort of uh, one of the things I like to do is to give my players the ability to catch me monologuing. So if I'm doing what I'm doing right now and kind of rambling on and on somewhat aimlessly, mm-hmm. they can just attack. <laughs> you they sly just, dog, you, know, you got me monologuing. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> But but that's true. It's is the you want to make sure that they know that more or less that the adventure is their story. Yeah. Well, look at what you're doing, James. So that awkward pause that I just gave, you came in with a statement and a question that's going to engage me or the other guests, mm-hmm. and that's what you want to do with your players. That you don't want awkward pauses. You don't want silence where you're sitting and looking at each other. Uh. You, if that's what happens, you need the man with the smoking gun. He's got to come in. He's got to shoot somebody and walk away. You know, you, you just you got to keep going. Um, staleness is the quickest way to end your game and have players not come back. Yeah, it kind of cuts that momentum back. Or as I always like to call that one the and someone kicks in the door. You know, if yeah. you're, especially if you're doing a modern day yeah. game, everyone's pausing and stagnating and, and reflecting and someone kicks in the door. Yeah, and and look at it this way. Your viewers are coming here to listen to people, right? They want to listen to Justin. They want to listen to you. They want to listen to Deborah. They're not coming here to listen to dead air and silence. So likewise, your players don't come to game to stare at each other. As much as, as, as I think we all as GMs sort of find that our players can get easily distracted and talk about out-of-game things, and we have to have table rules for that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's... Um... <laughs> Excuse me, I lost my train of thought. It's okay. Um, but basically, I think uh, as as GMs, we have to make sure that there isn't that, that dead silence, that we have to give those players the um, the game that they came for, even though... They seem to want to distract themselves. It's our responsibility as GMs to give them the game that they came to play at your house or online where you're meeting. Yeah, sort of like in the old plays when you'd have the narrator jump out on stage to basically signal the actors to get the hell off the stage so we can go to the next chapter. Yeah, yeah. The importance of moderation. 
Yeah, a, a guide almost. I would like to add uh, two things real quickly to that, since we're trying. You, you uh, Evan, briefly mentioned uh, table rules. Another way to get your gamers to buy in it, that, that I have learned over the years comes in two parts. The first and foremost is uh, as as a GM, when it comes to adjudication, if I have no answer to the to, to the question, if I can't render a verdict on something, then the rule is always it goes the player's way. And in certain situations, we may call a temporary pause and get the crew to agree to a house rule, which then, which I will then write down on the spot. And in a great many cases, we will name this house rule after the, the person who was responsible for it. That's a good one. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I, I've heard people talk for years about the, 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 the house rule that was, that was named after them. And sometimes it's, you know, it, it, it's, it's lethally serious because these are adjudicative questions that have to do with the life and death of characters. And in other cases, they're just meant to prevent screwball things from happening. And you will hear people uh, say something like, hey, man, you know, the, the, remember the Smith rule. Don't do that. And everybody gets everybody gets a laugh out of it, and and they go on. So if they if they if they feel like the uh, the deck is not stacked against them, they don't have to feel like the the rules situation is stacked in their favor. But if they if they know that there can be a caveat situation where there's no good solution, the referee is not just going to say, and you explode and die. Okay, so no. it's just going to be, okay, we have, no, we have no good answer for this, so it will go your way. Yes, you can leap from one skyscraper to the other without killing yourself. Whatever, whatever it happens to be, and if the situation, whatever it is, if it results in the generation of a new house rule, you might be amazed how many gamers will have an insecurity about that that they'll never speak to. But now that they know that that house rule is in effect, they they come to all future game sessions and they feel much better. They've got that great sense of empowerment because you know now they know the mechanics. They they know the secret mechanics behind the pages. Yes. That, uh, you, know, you know, I'm gonna have to steal that from you, Justin, uh, and I'm gonna call that the old ham rule. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you can if you want. You can do so with my blessing. And it really works. It really works. You give yourself about a year, and you'll you'll put two, three, five pages in a notebook, and, uh, and everybody will be impressed. And not just you, the, the the people who look back and they realize what they contributed to that, and they'll be just as proud of it as you are. That is, I I really really like that a lot. I. That gives me a lot to think about, to be honest, because um, I really do like giving my players agency, but also um, as a business owner, I like to give my customers agency. Um, my deep field uh, dice that I create, that was named by a fan. Um, 
I just posted the pictures on a, a of them. I was going to call them galaxy dice. It's commonly what people refer to them as. Um, but uh, someone suggested Deep Field, named after Hubble, and I just I'm a huge uh, astronomy fan, and that's something that I took. And I just really li- I like the option of giving agency to players and customers um, in a way that allows them to be a part of everything. And like you said, you know, buy into it because they're a part of it now. Why wouldn't they buy into it? Absolutely. There are people that I still stay in contact with after all these years. Um, and I, sometimes I hear from them and uh, they have read the basic rules for AC after collapse. And they'll say, Hey, I see what you did there on page 200. Yeah. You know, that was me all those years ago. I did that. So, Hey, <laughs> give credit where credit's due. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I think, um, Oh, go ahead. Oh no, go ahead. So I actually wanted to, um, to, We'll expand on that a little bit when I say uh, I'd like to say sort of that um, we have to remember each other when we're playing these games, that if we don't have each other, we would just be writing books. And um, very true. And so I think it's just it's really cool to. Uh, to sort of remember your players and um, and allow people to contribute uh to uh, as a whole to a community you know? we didn't evolve to fight the lions alone sort of thing um, you know we as business owner as a business owner we often are looked at as the head of our business um, people just see me but there are a, a dozen people behind me that you're not seeing and not really but <laughs> but that you're not seeing that are working behind the scenes that are helping me create something um that's really big and important and what's important to me is being able to hand that off that it's um that i started something that i i had this idea and this dream and that there are a dozen people that bought into that dream that that said that wow this is a really cool idea and i want to be a part of it and kind of relinquishing the um the reins to that is similar to relinquishing the reins of a story that you crafted. Um, you know, you, sometimes uh, as a GM, I uh, one of the reasons that I actually got into teaching was because I had a kids group down in Bisbee, Arizona, um, and we uh, we had a lot of fun and one of the things that was really important to me was to be able to pass on the torch of GMA to a new generation. And I had to write a story and a setting and a world and just hand it over to this, this kid and said, here you go, write a story. You know, I gave you the basis for one, fill it out, finish it up, do whatever you want with it. And, um, you know, uh, It was, it was very difficult and scary. Uh, but in the end, uh, today he's in college and he plays, uh, role playing games with 
his friends online and in college. It's something that uh, uh, inspired him to become a script writer. And so um, I just think that I guess my point here is, is as GMs, we have to be cognizant of the power that we wield and how we can really impact the lives of our players positively or negatively. That's, that's a very important point. Yeah. Sorry. In relation to what Justin was saying, he's positively influencing his players by including them in his games and stories. Oh, that that's very true because uh, not only not only can you do everything I just said, but in rare moments where all of these things I'm talking about are happening, when the communication is going both ways, uh, your players really do have the opportunity to become the heroes of the the game setting you have imagined and okay i know this is politically incorrect but i'm going to say it anyway it plays in it plays into the aspect of character death that that, that nobody likes terribly much there is a there is a place in my 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 fictional D setting where every time the party goes by a certain town they love to stop in and say hi because most of them had a character die in defense of the place. And now to this day, they still love the fact that that place is independent and thriving. <laughs> likewise, likewise, mwahaha, in those very rare moments, almost kind of sort of reminiscent of Batman, it is ironic as hell when your players do something that creates a villain that they must eventually destroy. Mm. That, that makes <laughs> for guess, a good story good. arc. I, I did that. Um, I did that in a game once where uh, we were talking about this earlier about plot strings, and this player of mine decided that he was going to have um, be the repopulant of the of his species. And but he was the last one and he couldn't repopulate a species. Well, I had this villain the entire time. I had this villain um, just kind of harassing the party. It was you know, a recurring villain. And um, I had this Darth Vader moment where it was, no, I am your sister and pulls off the mask. And it's the same species clone of him, but a female version the female um, repopulation part of the equation who hated him because she was born to do something that she really didn't want to do. Um, And that's why she was the villain of the story. So I just thought that might be a good way to kind of call back to those plot strings we were talking about before. And that kind of tugs on the heartstrings too, you know, because you you recognize the story, but it's different. So it's, it's, it's better, you know, (laughs) that that goes back to, Darth Vader moment. <laughs> hey, you know, no, I am your sister. Works too, you know. What happens if Princess Leia had been turned to the dark side? Come on. Way better than Kylo Ren, yeah. I'm just saying. So that's... Yeah, not, no argument. <laughs> <laughs> so that's probably a good point for us to start wrapping things up. Uh, so basically just a quick recap. So like for when it comes to players writing their own stories, make sure you write a character that has something that you desire, you know, make sure you're making your character 
partially about your, you know, something that you like. Bravery, cowardice, whatnot. Uh, make sure their story has some strength in it, right? You know, there's gotta be a strong something in the background. I'm an orphan. Hey, that's powerful. Let's strengthen that. One thing as a GM I want to throw out there to players of do not be afraid of putting conflict in your backgrounds because there's nothing cooler than writing in a nemesis that could either be a bad guy or a good guy in the story later on because that's always fun fodder. And make sure that your character has some normal and, you know, mundane things in, in the regards to the backstory as well. You know, I grew up a simple moisture farmer on a desert planet. So so what wrap-up comments do you guys have? Deborah, you want to go first? Uh, no, not really. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, actually, uh, I uh, I have to agree with the uh, writing your your own story as as a group. Uh, in my extremely limited game master uh, uh, ex- uh, sessions, I, uh, I I had a can a, uh, canned adventure. Uh, canned characters and every single one of the sessions was different and um that really surprised me i uh uh i had everything from hey we're going to continue uh we you know we're going to continue our escape to we want to rob a bank it's like what (laughs) where did you even get the idea to rob a bank (laughs) and so (laughs) i i um that was one of the things that my late husband always said that that the, the sessions and the group write write the story, and I never really appreciated that until I became a game master, and so uh, I I think it's a wonderful way for all of us to get out and create just a new little reality, even if it's just for a little while, and uh, get away from the stresses of of life, uh, everyday life, and and jobs and so on and so forth. So I'm I'm really glad that I got into doing this, even though I was terrified the first time I did it. <laughs> that, oh, they're gonna hate me! They're gonna, you know, it's gonna be horrible. But uh, it has worked out really well, and uh, and so I'm really glad to be able to be doing this for my husband, who's no longer on this plane of existence. I um, you know, to close out my thoughts on this, uh, uh, maybe we can touch on this uh, in another episode a little bit more, but. Hearing kind of the recap, it sort of uh, made me think about how um, players interact and how GMs interact with the players, uh, vice versa. And all of these tips that we gave are applicable to almost any situation. But I would caution new GMs about one thing, and that is... um, villain characters, villain players. Uh, a hero story is probably the easiest story to run. Uh, and as GM, we talked about it before, we have to be kind of guides. And as fun as a villain character can be, as fun as intrapersonal uh, conflicts within the group can be, um, they can also be very dangerous. And... Uh, they can be hard to control. Things can get out of control, and things can be taken personally very quickly. And so to close out my thoughts on this and to sort of touch on what Deborah's saying is, is you have to remember in the, that no matter what, in the very end of every game, you have to 
remember that it's just a game. And that if you're not having fun, you're doing it wrong. If everyone at the table isn't having fun, you're doing it wrong. And that's because that's the whole point. Everyone's there is to have fun. Hmm. And so as a GM, we have to guide people and we have to guide our players into having a fun time, um, no matter what the setting is, uh, no matter if you have villain characters or not. And so I would just caution that uh, new GMs, you know, uh, really think about if you really want to do a story about that, you have to really think about it, um, about uh, having that, making sure that your players are having fun, even though there's going to be bad stuff that's going to happen. Um, you know, that evil things, like maybe you're going to take over a town or something like that, you know. Um, it's definitely something to, to be cognizant of. But again, like I said, always have fun. You know, play with your heart. That's, that's a very good point. Scoundrels are fun to play. Villains are bad to play. They're fun, but they're very limited and one-shot-ish. Mm-hmm. And, and friends can be lost at the gaming table. I've I've seen it happen. Uh, yeah, that that is totally a so, different episode of its own, right there. Yeah, right. That could be its whole thing. <laughs> I would I would like to add one thing in regards to that. As the GM, yes, you are the guide and you are the keeper of the goalposts. You're never gonna keep um you're you're never gonna keep all the disruptive. You still there? Did I disconnect? Uh, I'm still here. Justin, I, th- I think you may have been disconnected. Are you there? Sorry. Okay, so I'm still <laughs> here. One, one of the things I learned a long time ago, when it comes to uh, uh, curating or safekeeping of the moral compass of your group, give them a one-shot adventure where they get to be the bad guys. Because whatever it is, if they're assassinating somebody, if they're robbing the bank, whatever it is, give them a one-shot that doesn't affect characters they are attached to and let them do it because it's a safety valve. It lets them get it out of their system. And when it's all over, said, and done, and you're having your soda pop and your pizza, they can say, hey, you know, it was, you know, it was, it, it, it was fun to get, get – uh, killed in a shootout with the cops you know, it's really too bad we couldn't successfully rob the bank but but man I don't want to do that again and so when they when they go back to their established characters that they care about so much more a they'll have a little bit of insight into the 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 villain's mind because just for one night they were <laughs> and after they've gotten it out of their system they just they they they, they just won't want to go there again so that's actually an insanely good tip. It's you can expand on that as well by using your players to create the story uh, by letting them be the villains. Whatever they do sets up the rest of the story for their characters. I've, it I've, does because there is absolutely nothing. There is absolutely nothing that prevents them from seeing the light of day. Holy cow! I was just about to do that. Really, wow! I, I just it, 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 the, the 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 evil part of it just felt so good. I didn't realize I was gonna. All right, no, no, I'm 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 not doing that anymore. Yeah, yeah, I I've had that feeling before. 
That was too fun. I'm not doing that again. I, I actually did that once in a old 3.5 campaign where the group were all evil characters in, the, in a prison under a monastery, and when they broke out, they then became the eight big bads the group had to deal with rampaging across the countryside, and that made their characters insanely personal to then put down the big bads that they actually got to play massacring a paladin's monastery. That and it gave is, them buy-in, right? Exactly, and it basically it set the tone because I let them play level 10 big bads. We had some drow, we had some lizard men. The, Kelly was mm-hmm. heartbroken because she had to murder a young elf child she found hidden in a closet in the top floor of the monastery because that's what a drow would do. She played the drow in character. Yeah. So, of course, later on, she ended yeah. up playing the sister of the dead elf so it became this whole circle for her personally of the conflict so that 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 is a really good you know tip if they want to play bad let them do a one shot that's actually backstory and backdrop for the campaign absolutely mm-hmm. uh, and you know i actually could i add one more thing before i close close out i promise <laughs> okay. I'll end it here. uh i would caution new gms about uh against shock value uh, I've seen way too many new GMs uh, rely on shocking their players with something, uh, and I've seen it go south way too many times. Um, I think it's important, we talked about rules earlier, to establish veils. They, uh, they use that in Pathfinder, uh, that certain things might need to happen, but we don't really need to see it. We don't need the gory details. Some people might want that. It might be the mood you're looking for, as I spoke before. But you also have to understand the limits of your players. Like a good James Bond so movie, you just need the door to close or the curtain to fall and just have it happen off camera. Exactly. You know you know what's happening, but do we really need to see it? <laughs> <laughs> I've been on so both I, sides yeah, of that. Just, I, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Okay, so I guess it's my turn to wrap up. So I just want to encapsulate what I said earlier. Whether you are building a game that you're going to go out there and sell on the commercial market, or you're developing a role-playing campaign, or even a one-shot adventure that you're just going to play with your friends over the kitchen table, If you understand what your overarching theme is and you include as many different handles on this thing as possible, when everybody gets together to play the new game they just bought or the new game you just built, then it's easier for them to understand quicker. There's something for them to buy into from the first hour of gameplay on. When you do that... And as a referee, if you bring your gamers into the process of agreeing to house rules and uh, and, and giving them a, a, a precedent that says, hey, if we can't find this in the rule book, at least once I get to get away with it. Maybe later we have a house rule. Otherwise, it just goes our way. And it makes people feel like it's... It's us having the story, not us versus the GM. And when your experienced gamers realize that they drive the story, 
They really will want to take the path less traveled. They'll want to go see the far distant corners of your imaginary world. And as much as that may frustrate you, the important thing is to remember is that's the, that, that's the fun they chose. And if you can do all of that, whether you are building a game you want to sell or just trying to have some fun on a Saturday night, you will always succeed. That's a, that's a very good point, because as GMs, we love it when our players surprise us and do things that are outside what we had planned. We panic, but we love it. Or or is it just me? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I'm definitely right there with you. <laughs> I, I love nothing better Completely than a wrap-up. I love nothing better than a wrap-up session where I'm looking at my players popping a soda or a beer and looking going, I had no clue where that was going, you know, I, or I had no clue how that was going to end. Well, that's in that Star Wars game that I played with you. Uh, that, you know, I I had no idea what was going to happen with that stormtrooper. <laughs> you, you walked right up and I thought I was going to get arrested. I thought it was the end of the game for me. I was like, well, here we go. All right. <laughs> I had, and hey, I, I, and, then, and then the same thing happened to the other player because I split off, thinking I was being clever. Uh, never split the party, but um, the whole party ended up getting getting screwed. <laughs> Pardon my French, but uh, the whole party ended up getting in trouble, and uh, I had no idea where that was going to happen. And you really pulled off a uh, a really fun. Um, really fun consequences for that. It was, I was truly amazed as to what happened. <laughs> or, or as I liked it, because that only happened because you rolled poorly. So, you know, it failed the story forward in a way that was completely organic and up to your choices. You know, immediately it's like, oh, you, 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 you said the wrong thing to the wrong guy at a bar while your party's doing their thing. Okay, so let's see what happens. Because yeah. that's yep. the kind of thing and that it just happens. And it was really great because you did fail the story forward rather than kicking the puppy and saying, you know, oh, you did a dumb, you split the party, you just did something, you were a one criminal and started asking about other wanted criminals in a bar. What were you thinking? And, um, you know, instead of sitting there and just saying, oh, you're arrested, game over for you, let's look at the rest of the party, it was, well, let's fail the story forward. Let's continue this story. You know, it doesn't just stop when you're in jail. What happens when you're in jail? <laughs> <laughs> There's a reason why classic adventures often start stories with you're either in a bar or in you're in a prison cell. And the story starts from there. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <Indeed>. yep. <laughs> classic. <laughs> All right. So in wrapping up, guys, where can everybody find you guys online? Well, um, so uh, you can find uh, my stories, my you know my books, my lore, um, and a lot of my products like dice uh, trackers for D and D, you know counters, you know things like that, uh, on my website at paradigmlossstore.com, and that is P A R A D I G M L O S T. S-T-O-R-E dot com. It's a mouthful. I know. I'm sorry. 
Well, I'll go next and uh, say that uh, Eververse RPG can be found at uh, pardonusgaming.com. That is P-A-R-D-E-N for Parisic Dennis, the designer. Us, U.S., gaming.com, all one word. And uh, we can also be found on Amazon and uh, drive through RPG. All right. Very much like my colleague, you can find my work at uh, Amazon. You can find us on Drive-Thru RPG. Or if you'd like to get your hands on lots of free downloads, you can go to acaftercollapse.com. Downloads are great because it's more story. Just going to say, more story. <laughs> Alrighty, guys. I definitely want to thank you guys for coming on the show. And like always, you know, you are always invited back. And if anybody has any uh, topics they'd like us to talk about, because we talked about this last time, feel free to shoot me an email at creativeplaypodcastnet at gmail.com. That's creativeplaypodcastnet at gmail.com. Alrighty, guys. Thank you for coming on, and have a great day. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Appreciate it. Hello, this is Eric. And Wendy Strauss with Stone Valley Hobby and Games. We sell board games, card games, role-playing games, and supplies. We have thousands of Magic the Gathering cards available, carry Kickstarter products, and work with veteran-owned small businesses to bring you our own line of products. We are a small business retailer, but we offer competitive prices, a loyalty system, and free shipping on orders over $100. As a military veteran myself, I'm a strong supporter of our armed forces, their families, and contractors out there doing the hard job. So any order from AA, AE, or EP address will be shipped absolutely free. Remember, StoneValleyGames.com, where we take your leisure seriously. Thank you for listening to the Creative Play and Podcast Network. And feel free to enjoy our other shows, such as D&D Journey of the Fifth Edition and Scion Ragnarok and Roll, a Scion hero to Ragnarok story. Thank you for listening.